Looking for some midweek laughs? Then check out Bev's Video Kingdom. Join Brad, Zach, Scott, and Nate, four guys who never quite grew up as they dissect their favorite films and have hilarious arguments about ridiculous movie categories. So grab a beer or a whiskey, or both, we don't judge, and tune in every Tuesday for the craziest movie podcast out there. You can find new episodes of Best Video Kingdom every Tuesday on all podcast platforms. It's the only podcast that'll make you feel like you're hanging out with your old college buddies without all the regrets. This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of Deluxe Edition. I am your host, Casey Shearer, and joining me, as always, my co-host, L. Ray Sexton. What's going What's on, going on brother? Having the time of my Not life Not much, over man. Here. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> Living life in Cleveland? Yes, sir. Good, man. Fucking awesome show today, man. We had uh, a guest on by the name of Matthew Bauer. He is the writer and director of a movie, a documentary called The Other Fellow. And it is a very interesting documentary about all of the people that agreed to be in a film uh, that are named James Bond, the real life James Bonds. Yeah, it was it was interesting to see these people's lives and how it affected them, which I would have never thought that much of it. Yeah. Yeah. I never I never would have thought about it, because as I told Matthew in the interview, I'm not a fan of James Bond movies. Um, So I never would have it never would have crossed my mind. But yeah, um, really, really good documentary about all these people named James Bond, like it's uh i don't want to give too much spoilers away but one of the instances is um there was a james bond that was arrested for uh murder and then in the same town as him there was another man named james bond um and so it was all over the news that james bond was wanted for murder and it wasn't the one guy it was the one guy it's it's just a it's a really crazy story about people named james bond it's really good highly recommended before we get into the interview with matthew bauer let's just go over some uh, house cleaning things really really quick here we are a part of the deluxe edition network you can find all of the other great shows over at deluxeeditionnetwork.com and the podcast of the month is bev's video kingdom uh, my friends out in California, they're good, 
check out the Last Call Brewery uh, in California. They all hang out there. And uh, let's see. As I mentioned uh, last week on the show on Deluxe Edition Network, if you go to deluxeeditionnetwork.com and click on the uh, the banner at the top that says the Denny's, uh, you're going to want to click on that. And then when you go in there, you're going to want to click on the, the image that says the Denny's. And then once you click on that, what are they going to find over there, Ray? They are going to find our Oscar style uh, nominees for uh, each podcast is, uh, has their own question there. So like mine was, uh, uh, what the hell was my oh best mustache in a TV show or miniseries in 2022 and then you'll have four choices to pick from yeah and you can also vote for your uh, your favorite podcast on the deluxe edition network and uh, we we would very much appreciate if you voted for us you can vote every day if you'd like um, just go over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com and then click on the tab that says the Denny's at the top of the page, and uh, you'll be able to find that. There's some really great categories like uh, Hilf, our podcast, uh, History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. Uh, there, my, I sent this link to my friend. He goes, dude, that first question really threw me off. He's like, most fuckable president? What the hell? He goes, and to let you know, it was Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> so uh, go check that out. The Denny's, uh, very cool thing that we're doing here at the Deluxe Edition Network. Uh, let's see. We are on the Instagram and Twitter at Deluxe Edition Pod. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, go over to patreon.com slash deluxe edition pod or head over to what a maneuver dot net slash collection slash deluxe dash edition and you can find all of our previous shows over at deluxe edition dot show and we are sponsored by get slicks.com go over and uh, check get slicks.com out get some hats some t-shirts hoodies uh, they got a lot of cool really cool stuff over there and use code Deluxe Edition Pod at checkout to get ten percent off of your purchase. Ray, where can people find you, bud? Uh, I am the Ten Cent Beer Night Podcast. You can find me on Spotify. You can come hang out with me on Facebook and Instagram. And um, stop voting for me for Podcast of the Year. Vote for Deluxe Edition. I'm stealing votes away from my other show. <laughs> That's all right, bud. You got a fucking, you got a really, really good show, man. So I wouldn't be surprised if you took that belt. Uh, okay, um, yeah. yeah, and go back and check out last week's uh, live edition of the podcast. We talk about the Denny's a little more in detail, and I show the uh, the championship belt that is up for grabs for the uh, for the Denny's for the podcast of the year. Hell so yeah. go check that out. Go check out all the other great shows. And uh, now, here is our interview with Matthew Bauer. How's it going, guys? Hey, Matthew. Yeah. How are you, bud? Well, very well, thank you. Yeah, nice to be here. Where are you guys? I am uh, in Tallahassee, Florida, and Ray is in Cleveland, Ohio. Awesome. Yeah. Very how about nice. you, bud? Uh, I'm in London now. So, yes. Yeah, wow. 
clock here. Um, so yeah, that's right. We used to doing some of these weird hours. Um, yeah, <laughs> our distributors in Ohio actually. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're Gravitas. They're yeah. They're based up in Ohio. I think they were LA originally, but they shifted up there. Um, yes. So yes, a lot of lot of emails and phone calls in Ohio time from here. Uh, <laughs> so uh you're not originally from london though you're you're you grew up in australia right yeah i grew up in australia um yeah i kind of came over here sort of for the making of this and plus i kind of always wanted to get over to london at some point um yeah yeah when you grow up in australia you kind of always kind of a lot of us kind of have that plan to kind of leave and often when we do we don't really come home again for a while i never left australia so i was like 18 years old um so you're kind of you're sort of raring to like get to another country if that makes sense so are you are you talking about people like all people from australia or people in your industry i think a lot of us so in australia you have this term it's called like going overseas you know what I mean? In other places, it's like just going to another country or something. In Australia, we call it going overseas because for Australians, you must cross an ocean in order to kind of get somewhere. So you have this term going overseas. I remember, remember I was in high school and our geography teacher said to, the, said to all the kids, who has been overseas? And all the children except me raised their hands. And that really, that did something to my kind of mind as whatever that I have. I must go over these seas at some point. <laughs> um, uh, yes, yeah. And so I kind of, I sort of left and sort of never kind of came back. But I think I think for those that do, the story's sort of a bit kind of like that. I think once you move back to Australia, you kind of go, I'm here forever again now. So we're sort of trying to ride it out. Uh, yeah, as long as we can. I, I don't know about our industry per se. There's a lot of Australians in London, let's put it that way. Okay, um, we uh, this this doesn't really have anything to do with uh, you or maybe maybe it does. Um, we have a podcast on our network from Australia. It's called Growing okay. Up Bananas. Does, okay. Is that like a term? What does that mean? Is that does, does, no, does that? I I have no idea. I, <laughs> okay. I, bananas can mean a bit crazy. I don't know if you guys have that term in the USA. You know, like going bananas is like you're going a bit a bit crazy. I don't know if that's like an Australian thing per se um yeah yeah we also have the bananas in pajamas which is one of our famous children's cartoon exports uh do you guys know the bananas in pajamas over there no uh, told, i don't remember that one when, when we grew up in australia we're told the bananas in pajamas are, are, are famous overseas <laughs> everybody everybody loves the bananas in pajamas it might it might be a lie i'm not sure <laughs> Well, that leads me into uh, one of my questions here. So growing up in Australia, um, were you watching like American television or like what were you watching as a kid? You, you say this uh, bananas show. So obviously there and we talked to uh, Jane Badler, who's lived in Australia for many years now. Um, obviously, there is, you know, production in Australia. Um, but like, what? Yeah. Because as kids here, like we're not ever getting like we did. I didn't know about other things until you know I was much older. Yeah, yeah. I I'd say in Australia, you definitely it's probably like you watch like half Australian stuff and like half overseas. Uh, so sorry, I, I'm really noticing myself using that term. You watch half sort of overseas stuff, and especially from Britain and America. 
uh, there's kind of a lot of that over there. there. There's this weird sort of filter that comes through. So when when you grow up in Australia, and a lot of people in Australia think that, and you guys might have this in England a bit, in America a bit as well, you think that anything from England is like really high class, if you know what I mean. Like just anything from England must be this really like highbrow, kind of top tier sort of stuff. And then when you get over here to England, you realize that a lot of it was just crappy nothing english tv but over in australia we sort of respect things from there and then from america yeah there would normally be kind of american tv on kind of in the evenings um yeah so i was i was a big macgyver kid you know and often you kind of find it in the kind of schedules and things but yes i used to record macgyver when i played at 4am uh every morning um yeah i also used to record entertainment tonight every night because before the internet that was actually the only place you could get like TV news in Australia or sort of, you know, film entertainment news and that kind of thing. Um, but also like weirdly as a kid, I was very up on like us soap operas and that kind of other stuff they cover on entertainment tonight. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like things like, I remember when like Xenia, the warrior princess came on in Australia, I, I'd already known about it for two years and my friends were very impressed with my knowledge of uh, <laughs> that sort of thing but no but mainly for me the entertainment tonight thing was because before the internet if you were going to get james bond news in australia the only place was really entertainment tonight to sort of get so if like the new trailer was coming out for instance that's the only place you would see it um so yes i would record that every evening with uh with mary hart there you go um yeah um, to and Bob, Bob, this his name was one of those weird second names, Bob something. But yes, I would watch that every night in the hope that it would be the day that there was that piece of new James Bond news. And maybe three times a year, that amazing moment would come, and I would re watch the VHS hundreds of times. Um, but yes, yeah, yeah, but yeah, there was always a lot of that very kind of overseas exposure. But yeah, the English stuff was considered very highbrow in Australia. Australia does have this kind of like anti-American thing. And I realize, especially these days, that it's quite, um, I don't know how to put it, quite incorrect kind of in a lot of ways. Anything from America, there's a real thing of Australia where it's like, oh, God, that's from America. It must be crap. Uh, if you know what I mean? And that's kind of quite embedded in the culture. And it's kind of, that's kind of quite backward, actually. In a lot of ways, you know, no one over here in England is saying, oh, oh, that thing from America, it's crap kind of thing. But Australia is sort of still stuck in that mindset, I think, a lot of the time. Wow. So, and it's still like that to this day? They're kind of a bit better these days, but but kind of not. In, in Australia, kind of bagging something American somehow apparently improves your standing as Australian uh, or, or or something like that. I think that there, there generally kind of is that sort of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. There was a joke when I would grow up and people would say that American culture is an oxymoron, you know, an oxymoron being two words that don't go together. And people would be like, oh, American culture, that's an oxymoron. And then all the Australians go, oh, yeah, yeah, good one. Um, yes, yes. However, I, I ended up going to NYU film school, so I'm not, I, I'm not one of those. I, I'm bashing the Australians who bash American culture rather than agreeing with them. Um, so how do you think it got like that? Like what, what, what was the, like, why did, why do you think that they think like that? Because it's, it's funny because like most, most, you know, actors, anyone 
they want to come to the United States to work. Like they, they can find more work here, uh, actors and, and stuff like that. You know, I, you know, we, yeah. I, you know, I think it comes back to the British thing. So Australia, as I was kind of getting up for Australia has this really weird interpretation of like British culture, kind of being a colony of Australia, of, of Britain, and especially being like after the war, there's kind of like this kind of strange elevation of all things British in a lot of parts of Australia, definitely where I grew up, you know, like, so my, when I grew up, my, all of my aunts would read magazines about like Princess Diana was like the main topic of conversation most of the time. And like the queen and all of that kind of thing. And probably in a way that I think was probably even more than like English people would be if that makes sense and then there was this real as i kind of say with like british tv and that kind of thing it was considered to be the epitome of high art kind of in a way that it actually wasn't and that even people in england wouldn't think it's that way but kind of through this australian lens um it's just seen that way things like kind of like uh, something like you know like phantom of the opera by andrew lloyd webber for instance, Phantom of the Opera isn't the same as like high class European opera, right? It's a much more kind of like mass consumer version of that. But growing up in Australia, uh, it, th- that difference wasn't clear, if you know what I mean. Like something like Phantom of the Opera was considered in that same sort of league. And I, I think the American thing is a slight result of, of, of that. Do, do you know what I mean? A kind of a slight sort of misinterpretation of this idea that all things European and the UK are at the very top of some cultural list and that the American stuff sort of comes lower down. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Which I think often when people leave Australia, they're surprised to hear that the rest of the world doesn't really think uh, in those terms. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But that said, I mean, please don't get me wrong. Australia is very much in love with American culture. I mean, it's, you know, Australian movies and uh, American movies and that kind of thing go very well there but it does have this kind of like tone of like that it's like oh it's a bit crass or it's a little bit lowbrow kind of is the is is the kind of tone sometimes in australia it's funny uh because a lot of american people too look at england the same way like the the princess that when the whole princess diana and the the weddings and all that stuff like they all like they they live love that shit they they eat it up you know (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think over here, people just kind of bag out the royals all the time. I actually live quite close to Buckingham Palace here, and like it generally, the royals are, are the subject of derision and criticism a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, I find in America because you know I live here. When I'm in America, I'm saying from London. Often the questions are about you know the royal family and that kind of thing, and I think that there is a lot more kind of like respect for the royal family, especially in America. Uh, but yeah, we had it here when the Queen died. I don't know if you remember, there was this like massive queue. It was like a 24 hour queue to, to go see, um, you, you know, the Queen's body lying in wait. And a lot of the media, obviously, they were maybe slightly picking those people, were interviewing people who'd like flown over from America mm-hmm. to be there for. It. And for some of us here, that was because like, I live around the corner from that queue. You wouldn't have caught me dead waiting 24 hours in that queue. So it was kind of funny that there were these Americans actually taking like a plane to to go wait in this queue for 24 hours. Um, But yeah, I I do kind of feel often it may have even been like, you know, as big a a news story over there 
Um, yeah, but but you know the UK lives on this without without all of you know without I don't know how to put it the, without the royal family and like Paddington Bear and Mister Bean and all that kind of thing. It, England would be a slightly cold nothing of a North Sea island, if you know what I mean. Like it kind of is. It, England's lucky to have these things. Um, yeah, and, and the James Bond films, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, you keep mentioning James Bond, and we'll get there. I promise. Um, you mentioned going to the uh, NYU uh, film school, but you did not come to uh, New York to go to the school, right? Tell us, tell us about that. No. So in about 2007, let, let's say um, NYU, the film school there, which is kind of a, it's a pretty well-known film school, um, kind of even from Australia, I'd heard of it. Um, they decided to, to, to try and replicate NYU film school in Singapore um, so to kind of like create like NYU kind of Asia, if you know what I mean. And it was designed to be kind of a lot like their New York. It, it was meant to be like identical to their New York program, but with a kind of, you know, like international sort of focus, you know. Um, and yeah, kind of it, it was made up of like half Americans and then kind of like someone from most other countries in the world you know there was a dutch guy there was a german guy there was me from australia there was a chinese student kind of all that sort of thing um and it was a bit of a crazy experiment and it actually only lasted five years not for kind of artistic reasons but just financial reasons i I think it was one of those projects which is like conceived by like kind of like people in academia but who maybe haven't quite run their numbers <laughs> properly in some ways. And I think it lost quite a lot of money um, and eventually closed down. But for us students, it was actually a really cool experiment, actually. And a lot of it was kind of, we were its first class and when it opened, it was a little bit disorganized in the sense that, say if you went to NYU New York and you wanted to get, say, a permit to film in Central Park, they would go, oh, you, you need to call Jeff you know what I'm, yeah, or Steve or, or whatever. There, there's the guy that everyone calls to get the permits for Central Park. When we're in Singapore, no one knew who those people were. And so everything you did, you kind of had to figure out for yourself. And like my, my, my first like short, your, your first project then while you was called an MOS, which is like a four minute black and white 16 millimeter film without any dialogue. Um, and I kind of did, I don't know how to put it, the best way to put it, this sounds very that era, but I decided to do like a gay version of Apocalypto, um, like with this kind of like these two, it made sense if you see it, these like two <laughs> lovers hunting this monster in the jungle kind of thing. Um, and this was before iPhones. And so like to find the location for that, it was literally like printing stuff off on like Google Maps that looked like it could work from the satellite images and then like hiking through the jungle to, to find those kind of places and then figuring out like who on earth in Singapore do we go to, to get a permit here um, and that kind of thing. And I think in a way, actually it was quite a good education because it, I think it made us all not very scared of kind of doing international shoots on the fly kind of thing without kind of much, worry about those kind of things i think some other people might find it a little bit more daunting suddenly going to film in like somewhere like sweden or guiana or kind of somewhere like that um whereas it kind of made us pretty confident doing that kind of thing so obviously when we were there we would we would go and film something in like thailand or indonesia or something like that 
Um, yeah, whereas I think – and did, it produced some pretty cool films. I think from the New York school, th- there's a lot of uh, – what's her name? Like like Greta Gerwig. I don't know if you've ever seen films like kind of Francis Ha, but when, when I talk about those those first like four-minute silent short films – the ones from New York are pretty Brooklyn, if you know what I mean. Like there's a kind of a, 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 a yeah, Francis Hari kind of quality to them, um, whereas definitely the stuff that came out of Singapore, it actually was kind of cool, uh, actually. But then they ran out of money and the school closed down. But in a way, it's kind of cool for kind of its only class. So, you know, it's, it's something different. Yeah. Um, that that definitely prepared you then for uh traveling around for uh the interviews and stuff that you did for the movie that we're here to talk about yeah yeah it, it definitely kind of added that kind of that sort of touch to it and and like weirdly kind of because the, there's like a student from this school everywhere you know and in most of the places we filmed there was someone there even in guiana where a very small part of the film takes place we had a student from guiana and he'd actually filmed his final thesis film project there already um with one of my producers on the film and so i was able to call him and go you know we're thinking of going to guiana and he was like oh i've just filmed there i know where to get the you know the cameras and the lights and that kind of thing um yeah yeah so yeah it definitely made us a bit more prepared for that in some ways though you know we maybe get to this more in the doc but actually early on in the doc i actually think we were a little bit too kind of globe trotting in the way that we filmed it in some ways uh, if, if i could have definitely for my next film i would actually film all my interviews at our boring cold little studio here in london because I realize now it's actually cheaper to fly the guy from Guyana to here. E- even though it sounds mad, you know what I mean? It's actually cheaper to get him a flight here, get him a hotel room for two nights, do the interview there rather than bringing, what is it, the mountain to Muhammad um, kind right. of thing. And, yeah, yeah. So we, we did have a lot of kind of international shooting with this, but actually probably in some ways a bit more. It, it gets exciting when you're like, oh, we're going to go to Guyana and it's going to be great and all this kind of thing. But often sometimes, yeah, sometimes the more boring version of your shoot might actually be the uh, not just financially sensible, but the more just kind of logistically kind of sensible in the end as well. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you you have to, as a filmmaker, you have to take your crew and all of their equipment and all of that stuff, which, yeah. you know, gets into paying money for more uh, luggage and all that stuff, when yeah. flying one person to a studio is much cheaper. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it definitely is that. You can see I'm talking about Guyana a lot. We have a lot of beautiful Guyana footage on the cutting room floor. <laughs> That as we were filming it, we were like, this is amazing. These vistas of Guyana and, oh, this is going to be, we're, we're going to be such, you know, Werner Herzogs with our, you know, Guyanese shoot and all this kind of thing. And in the end, it's in the film for about 30 seconds. Um, <laughs> and, so, and also then two years later, when you're running out of money, you go, oh, I wish we hadn't have, <laughs> hadn't have spent that all sort of there. Um, right. But, yeah. But yeah, you're right. The, the more you do those kind of things, the more things kind of like multiply. Um, yeah, a bit as well. And yeah, definitely the more kind of the more people you have involved. I always kind of say every extra person kind of quadruples the cost. It feels like a bit sometimes. 
Um, you know, like we were so I mean, you, you can see I'm at the end of a long production period when <laughs> like, a lot. But say recently we, we we came out in the US um and kind of Sweden and kind of Serbia recently. And I did the whole kind of press tour for that kind of by myself. Obviously, I was meeting people along the way, but kind of by doing the press tour myself, like I was able to get this the cheap 6 a.m. flight. You know what I mean? And, and I was yeah. able to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning to get the airport bus to get that, you know, that flight. And, you know, I was eating at like 7-Eleven a lot of the time, you know, and kind of that kind of thing. And so you can keep costs kind of low. Um, but say if you're suddenly doing that with three people, yeah, getting the 5 a.m. flight becomes like an issue. Do you know what I mean? And then like every kind of meal time then becomes like, a, oh, where are we eating sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, just often keeping things just like a lot simpler is easier in the end, even though it is tempting, tempting always to be like, Guys, let's do this. We'll we'll all go here. It it'll be awesome. Um, yeah, you can run out of budget very quickly. Uh, that right. way. Uh, Ray, is there anything else I missed uh, about uh, living in Australia or the film school before we get into uh, the movie that we're here to talk about? Uh, uh, no, I think we I think we're covered. Yeah, I think we got that all covered. Uh, other than giant bugs and things like that, you know. The, the giant, the giant bugs, the the drop bears. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> All right. So yeah, the movie that we are here to talk about, the other fellow. So um, you've mentioned James Bond quite a bit uh, in the interview here so far. Obviously, you are a fan of James Bond. Um, I told Ray before the show, uh, and he knows this. I like being honest with our guests and our our listeners here. Uh, I. I've never seen a James Bond movie completely through. So when your publicist or whoever uh, sent us the the information about this movie, I was like, uh, but, but I love documentaries yeah. and this documentary, man, it, it is, it is so good. And it is, it's still trending at a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. When, when was the release? Uh, the release was about three weeks ago uh, in the U.S. now. Um, yeah, yeah. And it, it's weird. You, you have this weird point when you're like, you really want to get reviews of your film on Rotten Tomatoes. And then once you're at 100%, you're like, just let's stop. <laughs> let's, let, let's, let's stop it. That said, though, I don't know about you guys with Rotten Tomatoes. I actually trust a Rotten Tomatoes meter of like 97% a lot more than one of 100%. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, like often ones yeah. at 100%, they have just got like five reviews kind of thing. And so it's not such an easy thing. So yes, I've, I've said to our team, I mean, obviously this is bracing us, but if there is a bad review goes up, it actually makes us look more le- legitimate in some ways. Sure. Um, but yeah, but thanks for what you said about the film. I mean, this film is not a film for James Bond fans per no. se. Um, you know, I am a Bond fan myself, but it's not really, we really didn't want to be a DVD extra and we really didn't want to do, you know, there's a lot of kind of like film fan documentaries and generally like say like the interviews take place at like Comic-Con and like that kind of thing. Um, and we, we didn't want to make that film at, at all that kind of felt like it was like a DVD extra or something like that. We kind of, we kind of had this concept, which we saw a lot of, 
personally, we almost saw a lot of like sci-fi horror inflected sort of storytelling potential that would come out of it. Um, but we wanted to make something which you could imagine seeing in your like standard streaming queue, not on your DVD extra um, sort of list. Um, so, yeah. And the thing is, you don't have to have seen the Bond films. The, the plot of the James Bond films is completely yeah. relevant to what, it, what these guys have to deal with is just the maximalism of the Bond films. And even if you've never watched one all the way through, you, you still probably hear about them a hell of a lot anyway. Yep. And that's what these guys deal with. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, really good movie. So how did you come to the, you know, why not, why not do a movie about everyone named Matthew Bauer? You know, I I've done a search, you know, how many people are named Casey Shear? I'm sure Ray's done a search. How many people are named Ray, the podcaster, you know, it's everybody wants to know, but why James Bond? Yeah, I mean, I'd answer in two ways. Well, one is that, I mean, James Bond carries with it kind of a cachet that, like, nothing else does, you know. And you see in the film, Ian Fleming actually chose the name because he wanted this really kind of anonymous, flat, normal-sounding name. You know, at the time, you know, in this kind of, like, post-noir kind of era, you know, detectives were called things like Peregrine Carruthers or Sherlock Holmes or, or something like that, whereas he wanted ironically this kind of very anonymous secret agent which is why he kind of chose this name and the thing is like bond very much became you know when we talk about the plethora of bond stuff out there bond very much also became kind of like a men's lifestyle brand in a way and kind of you know it became the epitome of what cigarettes should we smoke what alcohol should we drink you know what what cars should we drive um and then it kind of also determined like what kind of women men were supposed to be interested in as well. Um, you know, the term for Bond was always like men want to be him, women want to love him, you know. And, like, some people have said to me with this film, it's like, it, oh, why, oh, why don't you make a film about, like, people called, like, Luke Skywalker, right? And it's like, well, first, Luke Skywalker doesn't exist in the same world as ours. But, like, wh- what what alcohol does, does Luke Skywalker, what's Luke Skywalker's favourite drink? Actually, we kind of found out in The Last Jedi. Yeah, it's like, what's Luke Skywalker's favorite favorite drink? You know what I mean? What what what's his like catchphrase? You know what I mean? How much stuff do you really know about the inner workings of this guy um, compared to James Bond? Luke Skywalker's also only been in five slash four and a half kind of kind of films, whereas whereas you know the Bond films have become you know this massive sort of long running thing. Um, and so I think James Bond is very unique in that space. There is actually a film out there about guys called Adolf Hitler. And I actually get that as well because it's a name that carries with it a completely different sort of cachet, but it kind of is known the world over. Um, But, yeah, but uh, on your other part of it is I was actually where this started. When Facebook started, I was in a Facebook group for all the other Matthew Bowers. And, you know, when when Facebook started, you just have these weird Facebook groups. You know what I mean? Yeah. was in one called the joys of floor swimming you know what i mean they were just just these weird facebook groups propped up and somehow all of us matthew bowyers found each other and it was called embassy it was meant to sound like a bad nightclub night it was like embassy like the matthew bowyer appreciation society and it was all the matthew bowers and we would talk about who's got 
mattbauer at gmail.com. You know what I mean? Who's got mattbauer at gmail.com? Who's got the mattbauer Instagram handle? Who's got mattbauer.com? Who's got matthewbauer.com? You know, like that kind of innocuous <laughs> stuff. And kind of, I think somehow from that came the idea one day of what, what about if this was James Bond, you know, and what would happen there? And especially with an eye to the online kind of world and how much that would change it. And you see it very much comes through in the film that, you know, it's like you, you're not going to be Googleable. You're not going to be able to get James Bond at gmail.com. Even all of my characters on, on Facebook, none of them are James Bond because actually Facebook bars you from using that name. It actually, <laughs> try and join and i tried this because because i wanted to verify what the guys were telling me but when you try and join as james bond it actually says no but then suggests that you're trying to make a fan page for james bond (laughs) which they really like so all my guys on facebook are like bond james or jb bond or they use their middle (laughs) name whatever and so it was more coming from there that, that 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 kind of interested me it wasn't so much oh these guys must get aston martin jokes it wasn't so much that and the film kind of dispenses with a lot of that kind of stuff the kind of obvious stuff i would say quite early on um yeah we were very much more interested in this slightly more kind of unexpected and complicated parts of it how many guys did you actually interview with that name and how did you narrow it down to the one just selected? Was there like anybody else that was just too crazy for the movie or just? Yeah, it wasn't. It was, uh, I probably spoke to probably about one to 200 just on like LinkedIn, Facebook, that kind of thing. But that was kind of just, you know, initial emails and that kind of thing. Um, and then probably over like kind of like like the phone and that kind of thing and Skype, we kind of probably spoke to about like 20 or 30 of them at first at least. And then we settled on, I think, five who we – well, at, you'll see in the film there's four of them together in Texas, so we kind of count them as one <laughs> bond. So there was them plus about four others. And it was slightly logistical. We kind of charted a, a course through like – we like Canada down through the U S and then Guyana and then ending over here in London where we could kind of cover them. Um, and that was our kind of initial shoot of it. But I think the only one out of that initial shoot who ended up being a main character is the, the gay New York James Bond. Um, and he's the one, how do I put it? He, he's the one that says I have to be in this movie. I mean, he's <laughs> what you, he, what you're kind of expecting, I think, from the film. You want the kind of bitchy gay New York guy who just hates it. Um, that and- guy. So before, I'm sorry. That guy. He he hates being his. He hates his name, James Bond. He hates it. He bitches about it the entire movie. But if someone's paying him to do it, say that say that James Bond, he'll do it. Like. It's just yeah. so crazy. Well, and also it's like, it's, it, I mean, the thing is a lot of time in documentary, like people are lying to you a lot. Do you know what I mean? People aren't necessarily telling you the truth on, on screen. I think I, I find even with this film, I'm like, my characters are, aren't, they're not telling you the truth all, all the time. And for him, he's like, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. But it's part of his shtick. You know, I, yeah. I, I don't, but that's the problem is he would actually probably agree with that because he would say, well, 
I was given no choice in being James Bond. So now, yes, maybe hating James Bond is part of my shtick, but I can't escape that either, you know, and I think either way he is kind of stuck. Um, yeah, yeah, with, 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 with it. Um, yeah. And then obviously when he does the ads and TV commercials, people then see those and call him and they go, we knew you'd love it. You, you must love it. And he's like, no, I just didn't add it. It doesn't mean that I love it. Then they go, well, it looks like yeah, it, it's very hard for him to get away from. Um, yeah. Yeah, but we had him and he was definitely kind of in there. And then kind of throughout the rest of filming, our other kind of main ones sort of came up. Um, and so obviously the idea to kind of include the original ornithologist came up. Um, and it was actually through looking into that more that we realized there actually was a story to tell there and that they had actually ended up finding Ian Fleming and kind of they had a kind of story to tell there. Um, and then obviously a guy in Indiana was arrested for murder named James Bond, but more so we came to him because we read about the guy. You see it in the film quickly. There's a news article that's called Man Named James Bond Confused yeah. Murder Suspect. And so that's how we actually found out about it um, because, frankly, we probably could have found another prisoner somewhere in a prison somewhere in the world named James Bond. It was more that thing that this guy had been arrested for murder who was like a black guy, but then you had this, like, MAGA hat-wearing Christian conservative guy but who also happened to be a gun nut and all of his Facebook pictures of him holding guns who, of course, then is naturally confused for another James Bond in his same town who's been arrested for murder. And so that we were kind of really into and they both kind of agreed to sort of be in it. Um, and then I, I, I kind of try and avoid spoilers, but there is a, a fourth main character in, in this film who kind of comes in like halfway through. Um, and they were actually kind of there from the start in the sense that that. James, who you meet at the very end of the film, he was actually the very first person that wrote back to me on Facebook way back in my initial kind of search. And he kind of said, you know, all the stuff I'd expect, but then he was like, oh, also I got this name because bloody, bloody, blah. And from that, I was like, you sound really cool and I want you to be in the movie. Um, the, the problem came out that when we shot him, a lot of his story he was telling us was kind of secondhand because he wasn't really there for most of it. And so suddenly that story was having a lot of problems, um, which we needed to solve in an elegant way. So we had to interview some of the rest of his family to get the story that he wasn't able to tell us. And then one of, so I'm dancing around spoilers here, but one of those interviews turned out to be something like straight out of an Errol Morris documentary and suddenly from that interview it was like oh shit you're actually like the linchpin of the the whole film um yeah and so yeah that I, I think it happens with a lot of docs you know you go in with a certain idea but then it kind of changes and builds um over time and a lot of it changes and builds because what you have isn't working you, you know and we kind of realized quite early in our edit with this film that you can't make a film about guy. You can't make a film where everything is like the New York James Bond for 90 minutes. You, like even him, you couldn't have any, we tried longer edits of him and he gets old quickly, um, you know, and so it couldn't be bitching. So we kind of needed like the positive side of, of this as well. And so with, with that family story, the positive side comes out eventually. Um, and then the other was the Swedish James Bond, who's a Swedish guy. <laughs> 
turned himself into James Bond. And he was everything I was trying to avoid at first because when you go looking for men named James Bond on the internet, you come across a lot of guys like him who are like party entertainers. You, you know what I mean? Or like lookalikes, you know, like, oh, get James Bond to go. There's a guy here in England who's like Britain's most famous Daniel Craig impersonator. And, you know, he shows up. At, we, we were trying to avoid anyone like that. But actually, when we came across the Swedish James Bond, he was actually exactly what the film needed, which was someone who's, yeah. who was James Bond. But also, he absolutely loved having the name and it made this whole life out of the name. Um, and also, he was able to bring in a lot of, like, European glamour. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek European glamour. But he was able to bring a lot of that kind of in. And he was also able to bring... I mean, I know you've never seen a whole Bond film, but there's generally a snow portion of a Bond film. You know, there's generally like a part of it where Bond goes skiing and he allowed us to have the snow section in this. Um, And I think I can't really imagine this film both thematically, but also visually without, without him in it, this film would take place way too much in America, you know? And so it, it kind of is this very delicate balance that me and my editor kind of finally, yeah, got to. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's a fantastic movie, man. Like I said, um, there's ups and downs. Like you feel at one point, like I feel really bad for that guy. Um, that's you know uh, that turns himself into James Bond. You know, he tells his whole story, and then he goes on to like that. Uh, I'm not sure where that talk show or that the game show was, but like they're yep. just basically like shitting all over him. Like that was the worst thing we've. <clears throat> That was the worst thing we've ever seen, and you know, you you, it makes yeah. you feel bad for the guy, you know. Um, but so, how did you? So it is hard to find these people. Like you said you, if you Google James Bond, you're not going to find anything other than James Bond movies and things related yeah. to people that played James Bond. So, yeah. what was your process like to find these people? And uh, second part of that question: um, How long? was your research process before you started shooting anything like you, before you went anywhere yeah. to start shooting? Yeah, we, I mean, it was, it was kind of social media. There, there is another tack of how you could do this, which would be to go through every phone book in the world and look for J bonds and like send them a letter or email them or no, not email them or call them on the phone kind of thing. But to be honest, at the early stages of researching a documentary, you don't know if you're actually going to do it or not, you know? So social media so you know facebook and kind of stuff linkedin is actually the best place to look for james bond because people generally have their real names on there and they've also got a lot of their like by you know they work here um yada yada and so especially on linkedin because they show you where someone works you can find their email address pretty easily um you know without having to sign up for like you know, LinkedIn premium sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, you know. And so there was a lot of, say, like our Texas James Bonds, we found the, th- the, the it gets hard with them, the, the third oldest, um, and he worked for somewhere in Texas. And so, you know, if you look up a company, you can see what their email address syntax is, whether it's J.Bond or James Bond or whatever it is. And so we would then yep. kind of send it through there and find them. Um, yes, that was kind that, that was kind of how it worked, but yeah, Google obviously kind of wasn't your friend with that. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. You can do what you can do though is type in like real man named James Bond. You know what I mean? You right. can get there through that. And so some of them, the 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 ones in Indiana, I actually can't remember how exactly we found them. To to be honest, I think it was just a Google search that was kind of something like that. Um, yeah, but some stuff like that kind of does kind of come up and you get with, there was a weird one a few years ago that a man named James Bond won like a lottery somewhere in America, but it was just at that point where we had to be like, we're done. Um, that, that, that's enough. Um, but yeah, but then the, 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 I actually wish we'd spent longer in pre-production and for my next film, I actually would rather spend like two, three years in pre-production and really map out exactly what you're doing because there was with this there was a lot on the cutting room floor in the end which is standard for documentary um but um yeah yes it's more the wasted money that that gets (laughs) point to be honest um um but yeah i what what we did with this you'll see there's the part in the film where the the 88 year old um james bond in the film who actually to 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 give a shout out sadly passed away last week we lost our first um kind of of them um but yes but he he got to come to the premiere of the film and all of that kind of thing and and weirdly he after it got released in the u.s he actually died like the week afterwards um and it was this weird thing with him where i always kept saying you know tell him to hang on we're gonna finish the film <laughs> soon um yeah yeah and so obviously it's sad he died but it, I, i'm glad that that he, he got to do it whilst his film was being released in america i think that was really cool for him and he was he was handing out we've got little postcards for the film um we've actually got we've got our postcards um and he was handing them out to the nurses in the hospital saying, <laughs> you know, she's very james bond actually um yeah but basically with him he was going skydiving in San Marcos, Texas for his 88th birthday. And that was like a set date. And it was like James Bond is 88 year old. James Bond is jumping out of a plane. And so kind of because of that, like we've got to get there to film that. And then it was like, well, look, while we're in America, we might as well film these other four, you know, kind of while we're over there. But to be honest with you, I think that probably accelerated the start of our shooting by like a year more. Uh, than it really needed to be, um, you know. But at the same time, I mean, the, the film in the end, it kind of has this form where we have these kind of five main characters, but actually we did use every person and location we shot kind of somewhere. Um, and kind of a lot of the more minor characters, they're kind of used like, in the end we were like, you know, if you're watching like a climate change documentary, you might have some professor from the University of Oxford who, he, he he's only in the film for like 10 seconds giving one sound bite, but he's still there. And so we kind of were like, well, all of these characters are an expert on being James Bond. So we'll, we'll use them kind of where it's needed. And I think that the fact that there are kind of way too many James Bonds in this film kind of is cool at the same time. Um, you know, and there are, there are some in this film that just pop up out of nowhere for like one shot and then disappear again. And it's a bit like with, Another one uh, kind of there. And that was kind of a slight result of that slightly disorganized start of shooting. And so, you know, there's, there's always the kind of pluses and minuses. Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, I, longer pre-production next time. I'm, I'm not in any mood to start filming too quickly again. <laughs> so, um, all right. So that was how you found the, the people named James Bond. So how did you go about? There's a couple. No, it was just the one, I guess. J- James Hart. 
uh, who changed his name from James Bond to James Hart. Um, how did you find him? That was a pure coincidence. Yeah, I was wanting to find one of those people, um, but didn't really know how. And to be honest, I probably could have like hired like a private investigator or someone who knows how to do this kind of thing. And I think we probably could have found one through that way. Uh, but yeah, we wanted to find someone who had actually changed it to something else. Um, but yeah, I was just in London and I was kind of meeting people and telling them about the film. Um, and someone said, I know a guy who changed his name from from that to something else. Yeah. And so they put us in touch with them. Um, yeah. And we spoke with him and he was he was oddly kind of happy to do it. He'd actually, it doesn't come across too much in the film, but he'd actually had a really, he'd, he'd, it had really messed with him being James Bond. And it was a weird thing that I wasn't expecting because we in this film, we really wanted to try and choose like black men and like homosexual men. You know what I mean? That was the obvious thing to get people who were different to our conception of James Bond. But weirdly, I think it's actually slightly easier for them because they can, they, they've got these massive things that differentiate them from our version of the character. Whereas the guy in England, he actually was a, you know, handsome, straight, clean cut, you know, 40 year old London guy, um, you know, who's obviously he's not a secret agent, but he's, he, he ticks a lot of the same boxes. And also when you're here in London, it's not James Bond isn't quite the same in America. You know, James Bond is big in America, but here it's like an, it's a national religion, you know, and it's like everyone oh, really? here knows people in England. They just know James Bond. You know what I mean? Like they just know, they know all the facts. They talk about it in the pubs. They debate it a lot in the, in the, do you, do you know what I mean? The, the debates that go on here about James Bond. Oh, you know, can Idris Elba be the new James Bond is a really great way to get like a bunch of dudes in a British pub fight up at 11 p.m. Like, like it's, it's a it's a bit kind of religious here. Um, and so in the middle of that, it was really hard for him. And he really got teased at school. Kids at school here have got a lot more material to tease you with than, than kids in America. A lot of it are American Bonds. They actually said that they didn't get such a hard time at school from the other kids because how much does a six-year-old in America know about James Bond? Like maybe not so much. They said there they actually got it more from the teachers when they were reading out the roll call. However, for, for the kid at school in England where it kind of is this national religion, he got like a really hard time um with it. Yeah. And so it kind of only just comes through in the film. But what happened was he had a, he had a daughter. And he kind of saw that coming up, and he was like, "I," he was like, "I don't even want my daughter to be a Bond." And it's, it's a because I think he was slightly using her as an excuse to change, you know, to change his name. Um, but also, he kind of didn't want to be the Bond family because he he saw that every time he took the kid to school, names would come up, and oh, oh, your daughter's oh, are you James? You, you know, and kind of like once you have a kid, and I had to put it. These guys are really sensitive to all those times your name gets traded in the world, if, if you know what I mean. And just the number of times when you hand it over. If if you're someone who stays in a lot of hotels, like a business traveler, you'll be very used to saying your name, getting your passport out, kind of that kind of thing. Um, and so he was kind of seeing, oh, with a child, we're going to have birth certificates, name registries, doctor's offices, all this kind of thing. 
Um, and so he was like, no, no, I, I'm, I'm going to do this to, to save my daughter the stress. But I think it was kind of a way out for him. Um, sure. But we were lucky to get him to be in the film because he, in a way, it was something that he was happy to leave behind. And he was one of those guys. Some of the guys you see in the film who aren't in it much as well is also because they're not willing to give you more than a day or two, you know, to film a documentary. And what, what happens a lot with these things is you, when anyone agrees to be in a documentary, you're getting them on a good day when they say yes, you know, or you're getting them on a good month or a good year, but then often you call them back a year later to go, Hey, we actually wanted to do another interview or some more footage. And they, they've had a divorce or they've lost their jobs or whatever, or they're not, um, you know, with our, without James Bond in Indiana, um, you know, he's been in and out of prison several times since we shot the film. And so often like literally like with that, we couldn't shoot something else with him. Um, Conversely, the Swedish, Bond, the, conversely, the Swedish James Bond was the one calling us every yes. few months, being uh, being like, "Hello, I am going to Lake Como to be James Bond. Do you like to come film me?" And, and that kind of got to be quite fun after a while. And so, also, some of the ones who are in the film more, it is because they kind of offered more ideas, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Whereas, yeah. yeah, James Hart in London, we got him for a couple of days, and then at the end of our final shoot, he was like very politely and very Englishly, he was like, we, we are done here. Thank you. Good luck with your film. Um, yes, yes. So we're going to try and get him along to the UK premiere. Um, yes, yes. But yeah, but his daughter loves it. He likes to sit there and kind of be very not into this. But I, I think even with him, I think there's part of him that secretly enjoys it as well. Was there anyone that you found that had a like an, an awesome, incredible story that, you wanted to put in the film, but they they didn't want to be in the movie. Yeah, we, we, there was a fair bit of that. There, I mean, within even the cast of the film, we had what unfortunately, not unfortunately, but what happened a little bit was somebody we, we would shoot somebody later who kind of took someone else's place. So you'll see you'll see in the film there's there's a helicopter pilot called James Bond, and he's only in the film very briefly. And he was one of the first ones we shot. And he's actually got this amazing story that he was like a Polish immigrant who arrived in America. And he was encountering not racism, but like name xenophobia, if you know what I mean, where just like having a long, complicated Polish name, he was finding problematic. And then he got married and his American wife hated this like unpronounceable Polish name he had. And so that led to them changing the, their names and he became James Bond. Uh, oh, there. wow really cool story and he he's he's trying to become a pilot and so in his mind he was like you know ah uh, that's a real pilot's name as captain james bond that'll really help my career um and so he was really cool but then we found the swedish james bond who really unfortunately for the polish guy really filled the funny european man who changed his name to james bond sort of space um, and then even in Texas, the second oldest one from Texas, who's the preacher, he's actually mm. like an LGBT preacher. And he's got this like amazing life story about, you know, him coming out in the church and all of this kind of thing. Um, but unfortunately, our gay James Bond storyline was already taken up somewhere else. And, <laughs> and so that kind of had to get killed a bit. Um, but then outside of that, yeah, th- there is... Um, the biggest one was actually on the set of The Living Daylights, the James Bond film. They were filming in Gibraltar. And one of the 
British people, guys in the British Army there was named James Bond. And so, of course, they wheeled him out to get a photo with Timothy Dalton, you know, and it was the day that James Bond met James Bond, whatever. And so I had those photos and I finally tracked him down to his address and he wasn't answering any of my like like letters and things and so i eventually went to his house when his wife came out and she was like stop harassing our family we've we've been dealing with people like you for years but the reason was that it made a lot of sense in the context of this film is that all of the british press had got a hold of that photo and all of them had tried to interview him over the years and do stories with him and, and he was just a private guy that didn't want to be bothered um and so yeah so he was he was like a major one i couldn't get another one if you're kind of film geeks is chicago's most famous projectionist is a guy named james bond um and so he if you read a lot of roger ebert's old reviews you'll see he mentions this guy a lot you know or if if someone ever has a projection question in his q a's he'll always be like i asked james bond chicago's most famous projectionist and so we contacted him because we thought obviously having somebody who projects film could be an interesting something in there. You know what I mean? We thought he might have some kind of interesting ideas about, you know, he, he was, he'd be able to say some things about James Bond's place in the cinematic universe that our other characters couldn't yada yada. And he just didn't want to know about it, you know? And I think also because he's, he knows film, you know what I mean? He knows, I mean, like we take, as documentarians, I mean, they, they say like document documentary documentaries are you know the fakest movies in the world or whatever, and they are in many ways. The fact that we're portraying reality and facts in some ways makes them more false. And it's like you do you you know you take your four hour interview with people and you take out the best two minutes, and then you add like reenactments and music and and things, and you know he. He wasn't interested in having his story messed with, you know, by filmmakers, I think. And also, he'd been quite successful in his own right. And so I don't think, and sort of, he'd kind of overcome the James Bond thing, um, you know, and I think didn't want to be part of, of that. Says There's also a clothing company called Undefeated in Los Angeles. And actually, Undefeated is run by a guy called James Bond. And that's very much clamp down in their press materials. Do you know what I mean? They really don't play that up because obviously he wants to be his company to be taken seriously. Um, sure. so he just did like a, he just did like a shoe line with like David Beckham. He's actually a really big deal, this guy. And again, he just wouldn't return my phone calls or emails or, or whatever. And you can see with him, there's actually a lot of interviews with him online, but the James Bond thing never gets mentioned. And I can tell from my vibe from this guy, he would say to people, you know, like you guys before the interview starts, like we don't mention the, the yeah. bomb. Because like there's like 50 interviews with him online and it's never mentioned once. And so clearly he's like, you know, we're not doing that. And it's like, I get it. All those, all those people that didn't want to be in it, I get why. And actually their why totally speaks to what this film is about as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ray, before we wrap it up here, did I, did I miss anything? Anything you want to cover? Uh, the only question I would have is, what was the first Bond movie that you saw? And is it the one that made you fall in love with all the rest? Or did you have to watch, you know, a few of them before you actually yeah, just it was got for invested? Me, for me, it was, I saw Moonraker was my first one, which is a really good kids Bond film. And I walked out one night and my dad just had it on TV and I was instantly transfixed. And weirdly enough, 
it's come with this film. I wasn't like, oh, this man's name is James Bond. I was like, oh, this is James Bond. You know what I mean? Like I'd heard, even at like seven years old, I'd heard the term James Bond in the ether. And it was like, oh, this is what James Bond kind of is. Um, yeah. But then, of course, I didn't, it, it, again, it, I came in just before the internet kicked in and I actually am kind of glad I did because there was this great mystery to it. And so at that stage, I was like, oh, that's the James Bond movie. And then, like, it was, like, two years later, like, someone, like, had, like, a VHS. Someone's dad put on a VHS and it was The Spy Who Loved Me, which is actually the film that's before that one, you know. And, of course, then at that stage, I was like, oh, so every Bond film is, like, James Bond versus Jaws, you know. And then, then I finally found, like, the shelf at the video store you know what i mean like the bond shelf and it was like ah i see okay i kind of get this now um yeah yeah and i always like the way that's done i think with a lot of people they roger moore was my first and then i think you obviously moved to the sean connery's brosnan wasn't around yet what's kind of cool is you kind of leave timothy dalton and george lazenby till last as like the other guys but actually they're some of the most interesting films um, yeah, but yeah, it's always Roger Moore for it. I think your first is always that special kind of one, but it was, it was love at first sight. It, it really was. It was just suddenly it was like, this is, this is it, you know? And I think as a filmmaker, I totally get that. You know, it's, it's the, the Bond films are that kind of like, you know, that they're there to entertain you in, in a major way. Albert R. Broccoli, who made the Bond films, he used to describe this thing called bumps. And he was like, Bond films need a bump every like two minutes, you know? And it's like those things where it doesn't matter if it's like a joke or it's a girl in a sexy bikini or it's a gadget or it's an action beat or it's a joke. He was like, these films need that thing that kind of puts a smile on your face every like couple of minutes. Um, And I think they are, yeah, they're just these like entertainment machines, you know? And it's, it's, yeah, I, I, I get it. Uh, one more question about your film. Is that you uh, that we hear off camera asking the questions? Yes, that is me that you hear off camera asking the questions. Yeah, it's really tricky that I've, I've got to say, because often when we filmed that where, where you I was sitting in a different place. Do you know what I mean? In a lot of them, mm-hmm. just because of the room we were in or whatever. Nothing throws an audience more than hearing the interviewer in different places throughout because especially when we're cutting between them a lot it sounds like the weirdest thing but all of our first test screenings the biggest thing was like oh i was really thrown by the voice sounding different and kind of some of them we'd done over like skype whereas some i was in person and it's weird that really throws people so actually the most adr we had to do on the film was actually on me re-recording some of those but it's it's weird these things where it's like the audience doesn't quite get the technical side of of something that's off but they really notice something off like that um yeah anyway but yes yes that's me asking the questions cool so being this this was your first feature film um before these interviews i tried try to do as much research and watch as much as I can, but I couldn't find anything that you did previously. I couldn't find, uh, it's very well hidden. Like any of the shorts that you did, I just couldn't find. So, yeah. um, are you going to stay in this realm, the, the documentary realm or what's next for Matthew Bauer? I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to stay in the documentary realm. Yeah. Yeah. I think once you've gone to this, it's kind of hard to it's hard to imagine just coming up with something from scratch. I definitely do like based on a true story, um, but no. But I really like this film, and on a production level, 
Um, yeah, and, and I will say, I think if you go to my IMDb, I think I did make like, I, I, I made a lot of short films in high school and then I think I made three more while I was at film school. Um, but as soon as I got out of film school, I wanted to jump straight into a feature because like weirdly, even though they were all kind of crap, I kind of had been making short films for like 10 years at that stage. Um, and it kind of, I don't know how to put it. My heart was never a hundred percent in the short films, if that makes sense. It always felt like kind of a training exercise. Um, yeah, there's one, sure. there's, there's one, the short that I made just before we finished at NYU, it was one of those ones that didn't really get into any like festivals or anything, but we've always been kind of saying we should put it on YouTube or something. It, it was a, it was a short film about a guy who looks like Larry David in Singapore. <laughs> who decides to go to the equivalent of the Singaporean Emmy Awards and pretend to be Larry David to try and get, like, accolades and affection. Um, but, of course, no one in Singapore... We filmed it, like, Borat style, actually, at the Singaporean Emmys. But, of course, no one there knew who Larry David was because it's fucking Singapore. Um, and so it was actually quite good. And we've always said, yes, yeah, we've had that chat about, like, there is a point when you're like, should I just put my shorts online? Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely want to stay in documentary. I, what I like about documentary is you, even though the filming of this was a slightly haphazard process, the thing is you can have a slightly haphazard process that still results in a good film at, at the end, you know? And I think when we finished film school, they said to us, like, don't rush out and make like a feature straight away. And I saw some people do it. And I get what the problem is. The problem is you like you 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 raise quarter of a million, half a million, whatever the budget is, and then you go out and film for thirty days, and that's your first time ever as a director filming a feature film. And then you get to the edit, and often what you have kind of sucks, but you've spent all your money. Like you can't go reshoot, you, you know, you know, thirty days of of whatever, and so you're sort of stuck with what you've got. Whereas with documentary. It, like this film was made up of like 100 shoots that cost between 250 and a thousand dollars each. You know, there was no really kind of crazy thing. And kind of with that, you can kind of just slowly over time kind of go, here's what's working. Here's what's not working. And if it's on the, 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 the downside is you spend 90% of the time working with quite a terrible film and quite a terrible cut that you're always like fixing up here and there. Um, but because you haven't spent a million dollars in the first 30 days, it sort of lets you do it. Um, so yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like a documentary. I think it I wouldn't say documentary is easier. That's not the right way to put it. I get funny. If we started off talking about rotten tomatoes, I get why most documentaries kind of are fresh on rotten tomatoes, you know, and it's because, the filmmakers kind of have that time to do, you know, like the Marvel films, they have like reshoots built into the schedules these days. And mm -hmm. I think that leads to a lot of their kind of general quality. Um, but yeah, with, with docs, you kind of do have that option of kind of going, you know, this is terrible right now, but, but here's what we can do to kind of fix it or whatever. And I think that option is, is nice sometimes. Yeah. If you had seen this film five years ago, it was, it was, it was, it was awful. Um, <laughs> if I had to guess, like I'm not a filmmaker, but we've been doing these interviews for, you know, many years. If I had to guess, uh, the thing that cost most for your movie was probably the, the reenactment scenes. Am I, am yeah. I right on that? And, and, and obviously the traveling to everywhere. Yeah. 
the, the reenactments cost the most. The, on the flip side, even though they cost the most, you can do them more cheaply than they look. So the beauty of reenactments is at least once you've got your interview edited together, when you come to the reenactment, you can be very exacting about what you need and you actually don't have to film. So you'll see in this film, there's some quite big seat. There's a whole like SWAT team police helicopter sequence and there's like a World War II kind of bombing raid. Um, but the thing is for those, for all the big shots, there isn't one extra frame. You know what I mean? It was like we knew exactly what we needed and where it needed to go. And it isn't actually a full SWAT raid scene. You know what I mean? It's actually like it's yeah. it's like four sets of two shots joined together. And then you can cut back to the interviewer. And often you're, the person you're interviewing then can often say the expensive bit, if that makes, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> the, the part that would have cost you a lot, you can do in the interview right. and then just back to their face and kind of overall <laughs> it can kind of yeah but but yeah you 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 want uh, our whole kind of last like whole shoot period on this film was just the reenactments um and we were filming them kind of right up to like the very end um kind of on the even after we got into our first film festival we went and did a few kind of pickups um, for those but weirdly that's your kind of happy place even though it's the kind of most complicated shooting you're in this very happy place where you just have a shot list, you know what I mean? Which after documentary where it's all figuring out how to pull all this stuff together, actually just having like a shot list of 10 shots to do that day. It's like, that's the easy part. Awesome, man. Well, before we get into all the plugs here, uh, we started a new segment last week and um, I'm not sure if you were, uh, were you familiar growing up in Australia with the beast master? Uh, I, 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 it's like a something I've heard the term Beastmaster. Okay. Well, uh, one of our guests, Mark Singer was the Beastmaster, and, uh, he actually came up with this segment for us and we call it real questions. Okay. Uh, let me get my timer ready here. And, uh, what the, uh, what the segment is, is, uh, we give you 30 seconds to answer a question that Ray is going to ask you. And then uh, we post it to our, uh, the reels and our shorts um, because they're there. We found out that they're the best thing for our YouTube audience that they, they have a very short attention span. We figured that out as well. We, we, we honestly did for our YouTube channel. We accidentally put up a clip that was less than 60 seconds. That's we got weirdly that you, it only lasts like 24 hours but in that 24 hours like we suddenly were yep. getting a hundred times more views than on any of our and then and suddenly from that as well we then started posting all that stuff on tiktok which we'd never even thought about before yep. we were like hey we're doing some YouTube um yeah yeah but no yep. I it's 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 incredible man i did the exact same thing and i was posting um videos of like wrestling events and uh other events that I would go to and it, it's getting us like thousands and thousands of views, yeah. but I showed uh, Mark Singer this and he's like, well, what does that have to do with your podcast? And I go, well, nothing, but it's getting us a lot of views and attraction to our channel. And he goes, yeah, but you have to think of something that, you know, belongs on your chat, like that yeah. benefits your podcast. Right. And he goes, he goes, give me, give me a couple of days to think of this. And he left, uh, I was in LA with him. He left, and yes. like three minutes later, he knocked on my my car window and scared the shit out of me. And he goes, "All right, this is the segment." 
He goes, uh, Ray asks the question, and you time it, and it's called Real Questions. Okay. I was like, so you're, you're gonna gonna I don't need to have my own clock here. You're going you're gonna <laughs> to Okay. Yeah. All right, Ray. Good All right. Lots of questions. Uh, yeah, my questions usually don't make a lot of sense. So uh, okay. you said you guys uh, went through the jungle and stuff. Um, what's something about a jungle that most people should know if they're going to try and film in one? It's, it's, uh, it's actually a really good question. You should you should know, know your way out of there. The problem with the jungle, the problem when you go location scouting in the jungle is that most of it is like covered in jungle. And then you can always see this point of light in the distance. You're like, maybe there's a clearing there you could film in. And then you go further and further in. And then you can get in a situation where you go, I'm now lost in the jungle. Um, yeah, and especially before you had GPS and stuff on your phones, it can lead to some slightly scary moments. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, mark, mark your trail. <laughs> All right, great. That's a that's great, a great answer. question. Yeah, yeah. Very no, cool, man. Good, had that question on this press tour. That's it's nice to have something new. <laughs> Awesome, man. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this. Uh, please tell everyone where they can find this uh, amazing documentary, where they can find you, all that good stuff. Uh, yeah, so if you look on kind of Apple TV, Prime Video, Vudu, uh, it's on just on YouTube as well. If you search any of those, you can find it. Um, otherwise, we're very proud. All of our socials are at the other fellow. So Facebook slash the other fellow, you know, Twitter slash the other fellow, Instagram slash the other fellow, um, and you can find links to watch it uh, on any of those as well. Yeah, highly recommended, man. Uh, we've talked about it before on the show. We don't talk to anyone on this show that we're uh, not a fan of, and you know, if we would have watched this movie and not liked it, you would not be here right now. So. <laughs> Uh, it's it's a really really good movie, man. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to do this. We we get a lot. We we tend to get a lot of that was much better than I thought it was going to be. That that, <laughs> that, 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 that no, if there was one poster that would be it. Yes. Well, I I like I said I I couldn't have any expectations about this because th- this was your first this was your first feature. We had no we had no other reference to go by. Um, yeah and this and you knocked it out of the park man yeah thank you yeah it, 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 it goes some some fun places um yeah so yeah i'm glad you enjoyed it guys yeah thanks a lot for having this on and kind of getting it all organized today yeah man thank you man yep thank awesome. you thanks, we'll, thanks later, guys. we'll talk to you talk to you after the next one thanks a lot mate catch you later guys all right buddy see you man